Welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast. I'm your host, Andrea Miller. My guest today is Nicole Braddock Bromley. Nicole is an author, podcaster, national speaker, and founder of two nonprofits, One Voice and One Voice for Freedom. Nicole is also the survivor of childhood sexual abuse, but her story doesn't end there. Nicole uses her own life story to break the silence on sexual abuse and to bring hope, healing, and empower others on a journey from victim to victory over impossible circumstances. Listen and hear how Nicole's courage to tell her story has helped countless others heal from their past and tell their story. Welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast. I sure appreciate you joining me today just to open up and share your story. Yeah, thank you, Andrea. This is a a real treasure to be with you today. Thanks. Well, can you just, before we get into your story, just kind of give our listeners a general um, introduction to yourself? Oh, yeah, sure. So my name is Nicole Braddock Bromley. I'm an author and an activist on issues of sexual abuse and human trafficking. And so that's pretty much what I do. I'm also a mom. I have three boys and just doing my thing here in Columbus, Ohio. Okay, so you're juggling a lot uh, with with your family and the founder of two nonprofits that we'll get into that are a huge part of your story and how God used your story. So we'll talk about that later as we get into your story. Okay, fun. So like you said, you are a survivor of sexual abuse Mm -hmm. and that is horrific that you and so many others had to, that you endured that, but God did Mm -hmm. redeem you and your story. But can you just take us back to the start of your story and the sexual abuse? Yeah. So I grew up in a small Midwest American town. Um, It seemed like everyone who knew me considered me like the perfect girl from the perfect family. I came from what looked like on the outside, a happy Christian home was often referred to as the poster child of our community. I I was a straight A student. You know, I played sports. I was captain of three varsity sports, homecoming queen, student council president. So my life seemed ideal, but what others saw on the outside Um, this big smile that I wore to school every day was really masking the hurt and confusion that was going on on the inside, which of course was that I was being sexually abused uh, for close to a decade by my stepdad, who I loved and trusted, but who was also respected and well-known in our community. And for many reasons, I was afraid to tell and Also, no one ever talked about this stuff when I was little, so I didn't have language even to go with the shame and the fear and all the things that I was feeling. Um, And and that's what you share in your book. Like you just you almost didn't even know, like, was this wrong? Was this normal? Like because it just went on so long and was part of your life and you didn't hear others talk about it. That's exactly right. And I think that that's a big part of why this is such a secret in our society and it's just now beginning to have light shed on it which I'm so grateful for but you know when we're silent and for many reasons we're silent you know from in my situation my stepdad was someone that everyone loved and trusted and and I you know I was scared to tell because I didn't think anyone would believe me that and he always said you know that they would believe him over me. I was just a little girl. So of course I believe that he also told me things like he was teaching me and that no one talks about this. So that kind of made sense to me. And then also the fear factor, I didn't want to ruin my family. So to me, it was like, well, I don't want to ruin my mom's life. And he said, I would never see my mom again. If I told, I didn't. Right. So you're, you were getting a lot. Yeah. uh, Just a a lot lot of messages. messages. 
So, so the abuse started for you when you were how old? Like first grade? I was trying. I read your book, yeah. but I, you don't say exactly. I don't think in there because I still don't know that I have my first memory. My gotcha. first memory that I do know of was around four years old. Okay. okay. And he came into my life when I was three. So. Uh, you know, it could have started a little bit earlier, but I think I was around four, my first memory of him coming into my bedroom. And then mm. it went on until I was 14 years old. Right. Okay. And, and 14 and, was when everything kind of hit for me. <laughs> right. And prior to that, I mean, like you said, your stepdad was looked upon like a good member of society, the community. He wasn't some just weird man that was shunned at all. Exactly, which is so common. You know, you hear of these huge cases. It's always the trusted doctor. It's the coach. You know, it's the family member that everyone thought was cool. And, you know, you trusted them. So they build up this trust with not only the child, but with the parents and everyone involved. It's the grooming process that then you're shocked when it comes out that, oh, it was that person that, you know, seemed so safe, but that's why they're so good at what they do and they get away with it. You know, if my stepdad had been this horrible monster that was, you know, do only doing bad things, I probably would have told right away, but he was also a, the good dad who, you know, was practicing basketball free throws with me every night and building me up and felt very protective of me. And, you know, was at every game that I was at seemed to love my mom. So it was very confusing for me how he could be this good guy, but then would be doing these horrible things to me. But I think that's why they get away with it. Right. And I think that's what's so important for people to be aware of is, I mean, I worked at a child of sexual abuse prevention agency years ago, so I'm aware of this, but I don't think general society is that it is not just the creepy man next door. Often it is a family member that by all appearances, looks like everything is great. Like you said, he was a good dad. He taught you how to build things, played sports, all of that. He had this image that was a lie, but that's what helped him get away with it. Exactly. And then the other thing that you share in your book is you talk about in fifth grade that somebody did come and do a presentation on telling, right? Yeah. Yeah. So they did. And it was this cartoon and it was like an uncle and the kids. And to me, it was, wow, that seems so similar to what's going on in my home. But I also kept denying, minimizing, defending. There's no way that a family like mine would be going through something like that. That seems so much worse and scary. And um, so it was hard to really bring myself to tell, but I did feel like motivated. I wanted to sort of test the waters. And so I remember as soon as that presentation ended, I ditched the front of the line to go back up to our classroom where my teacher was standing. And I told her, I I really want to tell you something, but um, I'm going to wait and I'm going to write about it when we have journal time this week, because we always had this like free writing time. And so to me, I was like thinking I have hinted to the 10th degree, she knows what I want to tell her. And if it's that big of a deal, like I would hope she would come to me. So when journal time came around, I didn't write it down because I was Mm. so scared. I was scared I would lose my mom. I was scared that no one would believe me. You know, I was scared all the things that he said would happen would happen. And so I wanted someone to ask me and I've realized over time that's so often the case where the child who's being abused, they'll hint that something's wrong 
they don't want to bring themselves to be the one that says it. They'll hint and they want the other party, the safe person that they're hinting to, to come back to them and ask the question. Well, she never did. And so I went through the next four years of the worst molestation of my Mm -hmm. journey. And I wish that she had known, you know, that one in three girls and one in six boys are sexually abused by the time they turn 18. And that's teachers thought about that when they're having these conversations with their kids. Like if you have a student in your classroom who's not wanting to go home for spring break, why? Why wouldn't a kid want to break from school? Well, probably because they're being hurt in their home. So ask those questions. Right. And that is such an important part of your message. And I know, I mean, I've done did mandated reporter trainings in the past, but it's like this is a serious thing. If the statistics are true, which they are, that this many children are sexually abused adults working around children need to be on high alert and it's so sad that that teacher you would think after that presentation they would be but unfortunately (laughs) things would get lost in our society and they they do and I think especially at that time if you looked at me I mean I was the teacher's favorite I was every teacher's favorite I you know I was the model student you would never have thought that this could be going on in my life and so I think it's easily overlooked in children like that because the stereotype would be, you know, the kid that has a single mom and is poor and, you know, has boyfriends in and out of the house. That's the one that you might think more likely, but not this kid. So I think we have to understand that it happens in every type of home, every type of family. Right, exactly. And protecting our own children when we let them go to neighbors' houses or friends' houses that you don't, right, or sleepovers. I mean, that's a whole other... Subject matter, but I think we as parents need to, we're the protectors of them and we need to know it is, again, not the scary man next door. Um, And so going back real quick to your signs, because I talked with my guest last week, like she had a lot of signs of a a sexual abuse victim, but Mm -hmm. you, I mean don't have the tip, you did not have the typical signs of acting out and all this, but you kind of did go the other way as far as your perfectionism and people pleasing, correct? That's right. That's right. And that's something I think that is also easily overlooked. If you have a child who, yeah, is really a huge people pleaser, a perfectionist, or has to have things a certain way, or just want, you know, has a hard time ever having a weakness, showing a vulnerability, um, messing up, those are also signs of that there's something there that they're trying to cover up. For me, it was like I was masking so much pain and shame that I was trying to create it on the outside, this this life for myself that felt more in control, intact, you know. Um, but for other children, it would be, you know, the acting out, the anger, the bedwetting, the fears, all those things. Right. So going back to your father, who was an outstanding member of the community, but there were some subtle things that you and your mom noticed, like the controlling behavior, Mm -hmm. all of that that got worse and worse that kind of led up to finally your mom having some red flags and you telling, can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, I think that's something that's also overlooked, especially if you're, you know, the partner of an abuser, that you also overlook so many things because you become desensitized to the control. And you don't even realize that you're in an abusive relationship. You know, over time, it just becomes that way. So my mom, it was like, every minute of her day was accounted for, you know, if she went to the grocery store and it took her a little bit longer than it typically would, he was asking a million questions because he didn't trust her because he didn't trust himself. Um, But this was the kind of um, control my mom was living under and not even realizing that that was a thing. 
Right. And then it finally hit a head where your mom did. I mean, it kind of came to a head, excuse me. And then your mom asked you, like, is there anything? Share a little bit about that conversation. Yeah. So we had just come home from a family vacation. It was the summer right before I was about to enter um, high school. I was 14. And summer vacations, family vacations, like going away were always some of the worst memories for me. I was always abused, you know, touched when we were swimming in the ocean, touched when I'm swimming in the public pool at a hotel, um, just, you know, in the hotel room, all these places, it was very hard for me. And so I remember coming home from that vacation and feeling so overwhelmed with the confusion of it and the shame and wanting so badly to tell my mom but scared to death to do it. And so it was the week after we had gotten back from that vacation and my mom and I were in the car together and she basically just started sharing um, something real personal for her. She said she wanted to go back to college and she had talked with my stepdad about this and he became angry with her and actually threw something across the room and broke it. And he'd never acted violently ever. Mm. It was always just very verbal, but to physically do that, she was like, he's been acting so strange. And she also, I think remembered when we were on vacation, I came back from the beach, from the ocean when I was swimming with him and she was laying on the beach. She kept asking me what was wrong. And I kept saying, I'll tell you later. Mm. And so I think that these things were just adding up for her. Something didn't feel right. And so in the car, she said, you know, has he, has he done anything strange around you lately because of what had happened between the two of them? And I remember just starting to sweat and my stomach was tied up in knots. And then I just basically hinted like, yeah, something had happened. And she slammed on the brakes and pulled the car over off the side of the road and I'll tell you, that was the first time in my life I knew it was wrong. Mm -hmm. And she looked at me and she said, has he touched you? And I said, yeah. And then it just all came back. It was like I had buried all these memories and just pretended that they were okay or, you know, it was normal. All these things that I had taught my mind so that I could survive the abuse. Right. They all came flooding in my mind. It was like everything was just coming back. And I started telling my mom some of the things. And it was just like the first time in my life that I realized I was a victim of child sexual abuse. And that was something I never had even thought about for myself. Oh, wow, Nicole. That's so, it's so heavy. And as we're both moms, it's like, I can't even imagine that oh, moment. Um, right. Like you say in your book, though, thankfully your mom believed you because that's not everybody's story. And it's usually not their story. You know, I've been speaking on college campuses, high schools, churches, conferences for 15 years now. And the majority of survivors who tell me their story, they'll say, I'm so glad you had a mom who believed you because mine didn't. Or mm-hmm. she may have believe me, but she told me to hush. And that's why I named my first book Hush, because so many feel like even if they did have the courage to tell, they were not met with a safe person who could believe their story and do something to stop it. They would rather protect the abuser a lot of times um, Mm. or just, you know, minimize their situation so that it didn't become something big. And that's so painful. Honestly, I think that wound of having been met with a non-believing, non-supporting person is as deep of a wound as the abuse itself. I mean, I can only imagine because it's, you've finally gotten the courage to tell and then not to be believed is, mm. 
just unimaginable. And that's why as adults, you you believe a children a child if they tell you that because children don't make that up. Exactly. And and I know your messages to victim or survivors that if you tell and you're not believed, you keep telling. Yeah, that's right. I do. I and just say you 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 keep telling. It's so hard to tell again, but really tell until someone does the right thing. Tell until you are believed and and just always know it wasn't your fault. I feel that silence really delays our healing process. It it perpetuates the hurt and the shame and the guilt. And it also protects these sex offenders to allow them to continue to abuse their victims. So it's never too early and it's never too late to tell. That is such an important message to share a little bit. Like you said, it protects the predators when they when your story is not told cause, because because tell, tell, i think they continue it, right if we do not bring them to justice then this becomes this pattern in their life where they'll continue to do this thing it's never just one victim every survivor thinks that we were the only one but i will tell you the majority of cases there are multiple others out there who are also silent and it takes the courage of one of us to stand forward and, and say this happened to us. And then they often come out of the woodwork. I mean, we've seen that in so many of these high profile cases lately. It's not just one. Oftentimes it's 20 or 50. It's amazing. Right. And you share that in your book. I think you say 70% of child sex offenders have between one and nine victims and 20% right. have 10 to 40 victims. Yeah. That's right. Which if for no one else, but it's so important to tell for your own healing, but if for no one else, think of the other people you're helping and protecting. Exactly. So your mother pulled over, believed you, and what happens next with your dad and the story? Yeah, so my mom found the courage then to remove me from the home. Um, we left when my stepdad went to work on a Monday morning. We left. My mom reported the abuse, and um, that was one of the scariest weeks of my life because he denied everything and he uh, we were supposed to go to court and go through the process of that and as we're waiting for the court date we were staying at different places had a restraining order from him because he was trying to find us and I was confident if he found us he was going to take both of our lives Mm -hmm. and so we were hiding from him and a week had gone by of this constant running and waiting And um, exactly one week after I told my mom in the car, um, my stepdad ended up taking his own life. Mm. And that was really, it was really hard for me. I remember feeling immediate anger. I felt like, you know, I'd, I'd gone through 10 years of sexual abuse and kept his secret and finally found my voice, broke my silence, and then he took this easy way out. You know, I wanted to see justice, but I also felt a sense of relief knowing I wouldn't have to go through court and I wouldn't have to ever be sexually abused by him again. Um, but mostly I felt alone. I felt dirty and damaged. I was afraid of what people would think about me now that my family was destroyed and it was my fault. And, you know, all of that was really heavy on me. And so... Right. Okay. And you're a young, you're still a young teenager. So that is right. ugh, beyond too much for you to have mm-hmm. to process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you did not want your story to get out at that time. You wanted to. I didn't. So I vowed that day that I, the police told us about his suicide. I vowed I was never going to tell anyone again. I just wanted to block it out and just move on and try to be that perfect girl without all this baggage, you know, just pretend it away. But 
you know, and that it's not it, that easy. <laughs> right. And that's what you share in your book that you continue to try to have this perfect image. And yeah. but but you became very controlling of situations, uh, yeah. had an eating disorder, all of those things. So you even though your father, the abuse had stopped, your stepfather's gone. It didn't end there. Right. Yeah. So continuing on, you know, you, you have all this secret baggage. You can't just pretend it away. It's still there and it needs an outlet. And so I realized in my life that in order to heal, to continue to heal, you know, breaking the silence is the first step to healing. Even if it's just saying me too, I'll tell you, there's a ton of people who, as soon as I step off a stage sharing my story, they'll squeeze my hand on their way out, say me too, and keep moving. Mm -hmm. And I believe God meets us in that moment, that it's not this huge, big process, but that in that moment, identifying yourself as a sexual abuse survivor and saying me too, God is there and your healing has been initiated. But you continue on in that and there's more healing for you if you choose that for yourself. And so the healing journey is a lot of having safe places to process your abuse, to talk about your memories and and the effects of it. And so, you know, I immediately had to go to counseling, but it wasn't real effective for me because I was still trying to pretend that I was okay. So after about five sessions at 14 years old, my old lady counselor was like, I've never seen anyone go through something so bad and be so fine. But again, Mm -hmm. I was faking it, (laughs) but I knew I needed to talk. And so eventually I got to a point where I ended up reaching out to one of my teachers and telling her she was at my stepdad's funeral. And that meant so much to me. You know, Andrea, I found in my life that there's so much power in just showing up for people. Not having the right Christian answers or the right verse to slap onto something, some pain, but just being there, just showing up. And that's what Mm -hmm. this teacher did for me. And um, just her presence at his funeral. My mom and I went to the funeral um, and my mom shouldered all of the blame there saying that he took his life because she was going to divorce him. So just trying to protect me from that stigma of abuse. Right. But this one teacher showed up for you and was there. Yes. And so a few months later, I went back to school and I went to her during school one day. I said, I really want to tell you the truth of why my stepdad took his life. So she told me to meet her after school and I did. And I ended up, I mean, every sexual abuse survivor worries that they're not going to be believed someone's going to pity them or think that they asked for it or it was their fault or deserved it somehow. And then that they're going to lose that relationship. So I went into that office feeling all those things, all those fears, but this teacher did exactly what I needed. She dispelled every single one. So when I told Mm -hmm. her, she said, Nicole, I believe you. I'm so sorry you went through that. You didn't deserve it. It wasn't your fault. And I don't look down on you. In fact, you know, I care about you even more and I want to be here for you. So if you need to talk about this stuff or you just need to, you know, excuse yourself from class sometimes, just don't ever worry about asking for that from me. Mm. And oh my gosh, like that, she wasn't a counselor. She was a music teacher, you know? And so all of those things are within us. We can all show up for people and have those words that can totally change someone's journey. And it did that for me. It was and so that's powerful. Such, yeah, that's what I was going to say. What a powerful 
message to us as believers that, like you said, we don't have to ha- be a counselor. We don't have to have that perfect Bible verse. Just being there and showing up is what just transform transform part of your journey. That's exactly right. So. Yeah. Tell a little bit as we're talking about being believers and your faith um, through this process. I know you share in the book that you were, it was a Christian family. Your stepdad said he was a Christian. You guys read the Bible, mm. you, but you didn't go to church. But tell me how, how your faith played a role in your childhood and questioning mm-hmm. and processing that because your book, Hush, you do credit like the Lord with your healing and uh, yeah. So talk a little bit about that aspect of it. Yeah. Well, you know, now at this point in my life, I I don't believe that God causes the pain we experience. You know, he doesn't cause it to happen, but I do believe that he will use all the evil that does happen in this world for good. And that is how it played out for me. So, you know, I was, I was angry at God and I was questioning, where were you? Why didn't you stop it? All those typical things. But I got to a point where, I realized and I heard people say that if God is a perfect father, he would want us to come to him with our questions and our anger, not running away from him. So I think for a while I was, I was like running away and throwing these like angry questions backwards, but not waiting for his response. And so um, I got to a point as a teenager where I started journaling and I journaled the real things like I'm cussing at God, like Mm -hmm. I'm getting very raw with him because I think deep down, I knew I could trust him with it. And through that process of going to him, even in my honest questions and hurts, um, there was a situation that happened where I was invited to this church camp. I had just started going to a church, my mom and I, after his suicide. And this youth group, they'd invited me to go to the summer camp. And so I went and, you know, it was fun and everything. But what was really impactful was the last day they had this time of open mic where anybody could get up and share something great that happened that week, something God was doing. Um, I remember one girl got up and talked about the boyfriend God gave her at camp. And I was just like, this is so (laughs) stupid. (laughs) Like, come on, girls. And I was like, well, God didn't give me a boyfriend, but. I did feel so compelled by the Holy Spirit to walk up and tell my story. (laughs) And I remember it was almost an out of body experience, but I felt like I had to do it, you know, and I did. And it was super awkward. But this was the time when we did the thing called pen pals where, you you know, we wrote with pen and paper and it took to get someone a message back in like (laughs) the old days. That's right. (laughs) So I went home and about three days later, I started getting letters from other kids at this camp telling me their stories. Mm. And it was so impactful for me because I thought I was the only one, you know, that there's no way kids at this camp that have like perfect families would have gone through this. But they were saying, Nicole, thank you so much for your courage at that camp. I also am being abused at home or by this person or by that person. And I never thought I could tell, but you've given me the courage to tell you. And so I started seeing that, you know, I wasn't the only one. And then I opened my Bible and this was the time when I was really journaling with, with God and getting it all out there. And I would also open my Bible and just see where he led me. (laughs) And I Mm -hmm. did that when I was sitting down with all these letters all around me in my bedroom. And I opened to second Corinthians one, three, and four. And it says, praise 
be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles, so that we can comfort others in any trouble with the same comfort we ourselves have received from God. And it was like, I knew God was comforting me. I felt it when I would journal, when I would pray, when I would cry into my pillow at night. I knew he was there and I saw him bringing people in my life, like my music teacher, you know, and I felt like he was calling me to write back and forth with these other young teens and comfort them with the comfort I was receiving. And so it became this thing where this verse was becoming real to me. He was real to me. It was in real time. I was being called to be a voice. And and I always say that my pain put me in hiding, but my purpose called me out. And that was when Mm -hmm. I got a glimpse of that, that God was calling me out because there was purpose from my pain. He didn't cause it, but he would use it. And I mean, he's used my story to free hundreds of thousands of survivors at this point. And it's just absolutely amazing. (laughs) It really, it is such a God story because like you said, you had just the most horrendous pain, but then just by you telling your story, you getting the courage as a 15 year old to tell, Mm -hmm. you gave others the courage to tell their story. And so at that age, you started feeling a call, like God wants to use this. He wants me to be a voice. And is that, tell me then from there, how your one voice was founded, um, the nonprofit that you have. Yeah. So that was at 15 and I was still kind of quiet about it. So it was mostly through the letters, the pen pal thing, um, encouraging other survivors, but I still was nervous about, you know, people I'm doing daily life with knowing. So I still kind of tucked it away a little bit, but I felt that calling in my life. Like I knew that was my purpose and I didn't know how to get there, but I knew it was there. Um, and so then I went off to college and like most people who've been through any type of childhood trauma, I majored in psychology (laughs) and, but still, you know, I was a college athlete and I played basketball and I wanted again to look like I had it all together. So my freshman and sophomore year, I did that. And, um, I remember my sophomore year, I was really getting triggered by a lot of things and, and I struggled being away from my mom and, there was just a lot going on there. And I knew deep down it was time for me to go back to counseling. And that was, and I, I think that's so good that you bring that up. And that's like mm-hmm. us last week, the same thing, like the healing process, especially for sexual abuse victims is such an ongoing, it's not like check it off my list and I'm done. Uh-huh. Or that's it doesn't right. mean like I'm a failure because I thought I was healed, but I'm not. So I think that's oh, so yeah. good that you're bringing that up, that this yeah. is a long process. It's lifelong. Healing is a lifelong journey. It's not linear. It's ups and downs and it's windy and it's dark and it's light. I always pictured the healing, the healing journey, like a long, dark tunnel with a pinpoint of light at the end. So there was always hope. There's something you're going for. There's a goal, but it's long and it's hard. And I never stand before an audience and say, God has healed me because I think he's always healing us. There's always more. And things can come up in life that are unexpected and they'll trigger you to remember something that you may be forgotten or just the effects of abuse can, can come back up out of nowhere. You know, your child becomes the age that you were when you were abused or all kinds of things, you know, right. just being in relationship with people can, can bring things up. So it's always there. Right. And you're very honest too, in your book about dating and marriage and all that comes with that, with the sexual aspects of it. So like you said, it's not 
an end process. The healing is not, it is an ongoing lifelong process. Yeah. And you're not taking anything away from God by saying that. I think it's good to be always open to more. He always has more for us. And you do share a lot in your book too, going along with the healing that your Mm -hmm. ultimate healing, you feel like you can only heal so far without the Lord, that your ultimate healing came in the Lord of replacing those lies with truths and all of that. So talk a little bit about that aspect of your healing. Yeah, definitely. I think that's one of the most powerful pieces of my book, Hush, is the replacing the lies with truth. In fact, I went so far as to then later I wrote uh, a workbook companion that can be used as even support group curriculum. It has a movie DVD that goes with it. It's an eight-week study because I think that's so important to bring God into your healing journey. Because what he has said about certain parts of me, certain parts of my healing, um, has made more difference than what anyone else could tell me. It's like you Mm -hmm. could tell me till you're blue in the face that it wasn't my fault. But until God said to me, Nicole, the fact that your body responded to your stepdad's touch is only because I made it to do that. It's not because you're a dirty person. It's because your body was doing what it was supposed to do. When I felt God tell me that, that changed everything for me. And I was able to finally believe it wasn't my fault. And I was Mm -hmm. finally able to believe that I wasn't dirty and wrong and gross, but that in fact, it was his decision, my stepdad's sin, you know? So that's why right. I think what God has to say makes so much more of a difference. It's a deeper impact. It's a, it's for me, I'm able to look back on my healing journey and how far I've come. And I can see like little markers along the road where I felt like God changed something for me. Like I felt him say something, <laughs> you know? Right. And you were intentional. Yes. And you were intentional with replacing those lies with truths. And I highly recommend, we'll put the link to your book, but okay. highly recommend your book to sexual abuse survivors because I, so many of those lives, you have such really hard, good chapters about those lies and then what God says about them that could be so healing. So going back to college, you realized yes. you need, you were, sorry, we got off there a little bit. <laughs> going back to college, you realized yeah. you needed more healing. You were triggered, got mm. back in counseling and then take it, take it from there then with how God continues to do on music. Eventually I'm walking to the counseling office. Well, let me just say that there were times in my life where I had someone call me out. So I, I can remember, and this is where I want people who have not been abused to hear this. You can look beneath the surface and lives around you and see when something seems off. And so many times we overlook it or we feel weird bringing it up. But sometimes it can make the world of difference in someone else's life. So I remember I had like a string of really bad games. You know, I said I was a college athlete. So I was I was going through it and I felt so compelled. I needed I really needed to go back to counseling, but I, I was unsure. And there was this one girl. She was a RA on my campus and just super kind and compassionate upperclassmen. And she was always at our games and really supportive. And she came up to me one day and she said, Nicole, you, you've just seemed a little off. You've seemed, you know, down or is something wrong? Are, are you okay? And I said, of course, I'm fine. I'm perfectly fine. Like, I don't know why you would say that, but I knew I, I felt bad. But then she took it a second step and she said, Nicole, I just want you to know if you ever need to talk, I'm here. And man, like if you're going through something, you tuck that in your pocket and you know who's safe someone that goes to you with that. And it seems so easy, 
but no one does that. But that was sort of like God's wake up call to me. Like people are seeing this, people care. It's okay for you to start acknowledging it. Go to the counseling center. Mm. So that kind of propelled me. And I did, I, I ended up going and I was so nervous that people would see me walking down the one sidewalk that goes to the counseling center. <laughs> so I think I wrote in my book, actually, I put my like hoodie up and I pulled it really tight and I could just see through a little hole. <laughs> I didn't want people to see my face, but then my basketball number was on the back. So obviously I didn't yeah, have that. You know. <laughs> but so anyways, I, I get there and that was one of the most powerful years for me because I was ready. It was so different than when I was 14 and pretending I was fine. Like I went in there because I knew I needed it. I was ready. And that made all the difference. And it was a great year for me. I felt like I received a lot of healing. I worked through some major steps in my healing journey that I talk about in Hush. And it was after that year I ended up transferring schools and I felt I was at this new place where it was time to start pouring into my calling and living out my purpose. And so I just started volunteering everywhere I could where they were hurting women or abused kids. And so, you know, I would work the hotline at the local rape crisis center. I would volunteer for the domestic violence shelter everywhere I could be pouring in, just learning and being around that for free. And eventually my senior year, I was shadowing a woman um, that worked at the rape crisis center who would go out into the local schools and talk about sexual harassment or abuse. And she would show a PowerPoint and, you know, it was good, but I said to her eventually, you know, I think these kids would respond better to a real life story. Mm. (laughs) And she was like, well, if you can find a survivor who's courageous enough to tell their story for us, you just let me know. And it was like, Hmm. Oh, wow. So she did not know that that was your story. <laughs> not okay. to that degree to okay. where I was going to be. Yeah. So okay. I was like, okay. And I knew that was my moment. So the next time we went out, I did. And you wouldn't believe the number of students who came forward, shared their stories. <laughs> it was just amazing. And so that was really my moment of realizing this is a real thing. I've got to keep as hard as it is, as embarrassing as it can be, you know, sharing the most shameful thing in my whole life that should have been hidden forever is actually what God would use to bring freedom and light for so many people. And so, right. I mean, what you felt should have been hidden, but like you say in your book, like God, when we're brought, these things are brought to light, that is when God can use them. And so your courage to share that is now that's become your keynote um, address that you do in schools, right? The, our mm-hmm. little secret. And so yeah. you go to schools nationwide, churches, all of that, and share that message now, correct? That's right. Yeah. So right out of right out of college, I started speaking on um, other college campuses. That's, that's my main thing is I love okay. talking to college students. I think it's a great time to really look at your past, where you've come from, what baggage you're bringing, And then what do you want to do when you're out of here? So you have a few years to really wrestle that out, work on your own healing, find your voice, and then go out and make an impact. So that's my main. But yeah, right out of college myself, I began speaking on college campuses and raising awareness and sharing my story. And that was um, 16 years ago now. So, um, yep. And that that started then. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. And then is that when you wrote your books too? It's just amazing to me how <laughs> you get from, I'm never telling anybody this. To, <laughs> I know. Telling everybody and I'm writing a book. So is that when the Lord started to work in your heart also to write your books? So that's what's funny. Yeah. Most people write a book and then they start speaking. I did the opposite. Uh-huh. I started okay. speaking. And then as I'm traveling all over the country, 22, 23 years old, from college to college and church to church, I'm like, I'm starting all these little fires, right? And people are telling their stories and it's great. And, you know, many of them are starting counseling and working on their own healing or telling their partners or whatever. But I was like, but I just feel like I want to leave them with something. I want to leave them with more, something that they can just really eat, you know? And so that's when I started writing. And at 27 years old, I was... I got a, a book deal, and so that was really amazing. So Hush came out in um, when I was 27 years old, and I was able to leave people with something more to really walk them through. And I love Hush because when I wrote it, it, it was about – the focus was I want to be that person that's sitting on the couch next to them, talking to them, providing hope, providing the next step. What's the next step? Sharing real stories so that they know they're not alone. And that is the best feedback I've gotten over and over. People are like, this is my favorite book on healing from sexual abuse because it just, you understand. I feel like you're telling my story and I feel like you're just sitting next to me. And that's been really cool. So Hush came out um, when I was 27. And then I wrote the next book called Breathe um, when I was 29. And that book is kind of like, okay, you found your voice. But now I'm like struggling in relationships. I don't trust people, you know. Um, so it's about finding the freedom to thrive in your relationships after child sexual abuse. Right, which is what one of the is. biggest challenges um, exactly, in that exactly. healing process. Yeah, and it talks about how we all have people around us. Like we need to create a circle of inspiration, people that inspire us to keep moving on our healing journey. So you know, there's all types of roles in your life and each chapter is devoted to that role. So there's, you know, a book to parents, a book to children of survivors, a book to um, the intimate partner, a book to friends, a book to mentors, or sorry, a chapter to mentors, a chapter for all those. So it's written to the survivor in that relationship, but it's also written to the other person, the support person. So for instance, one chapter of the book, um, is for partners. So my husband actually wrote a letter to spouses of survivors. And then my mom wrote a letter at the end of the chapter that's written to parents of survivors. So it's got, you know, it's for both sides so that we create this healthy environment for a survivor to live out. Which is so important because I think you could be listening to this or reading about it and think, well, I'm not a victim of, you know, or a survivor of sexual abuse. But with, again, with the statistics, chances are, you know, somebody that oh, is. Exactly. And, and there is one, you know, painful, traumatic, abusive relationship can lead to so much trauma. So can one healthy, loving relationship yeah. lead to so much healing for a survivor. We need those people in our lives. Right. And it just, it cannot be um, underemphasized. Again, what you said about just being there and just being willing to listen and talk. 
to that person that tells you. So then moving on, this is, I mean, as this, as if your God story isn't amazing enough here, how God used that, <laughs> I want to hear about then the next nonprofit, yeah. the, the One Voice for Freedom. Um, and just reading your bio, it says that uh, in 2010, you started campaigning across East Africa and Uganda. You were the first to speak about sex slavery and sexual yeah. abuse, which is huge. I mean, yeah. I, I went to Uganda, what, three years ago? I have a good friend that adopted two kids from there. So that is huge for this country that you were able to speak there. Tell me how that came about, that God was able to use you there. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that was basically my first book, Hush, was um, published in East Africa by an East African um, book company. And so they just did a huge campaign for me where I would travel around and speak about these issues. And it all culminated at the end of the week where I was speaking alongside the First Lady of Uganda and Kenyan Supreme Court justices and talking about the problem of sexual abuse and trafficking in East Africa. And they were basically shining light on this for the first time ever in a public forum. Which is and incredible. It, it gave me goosebumps when you said that. It's like they're acknowledging it and letting you speak. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, this is just like 10 years ago. So that was absolutely incredible. So I came back from that just feeling um, amazing. <laughs> and then, I, go ahead. no, I was gonna say, I cannot even imagine. And then that's what led you to the Cambodia to go undercover. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So at that point I, I had been receiving lots of emails from survivors of sexual abuse, um, just telling me their stories because they'd read my books and now it's becoming all over the world. And I'd become, and I was face to face even in Africa with trafficking and seeing it happening and doing what I can to stop it. But so I was becoming passionate about child sex trafficking and stopping it where I could. But when I came back and was receiving these emails from survivors of sex trafficking in America, they were saying, Nicole, you always speak and write about how you wanted to run away. And they Mm -hmm. would say, well, I did. And I ran right out of, you know, the abuse in my home right into the arms of an even worse nightmare, which was someone who ended up pimping them out for sex Mm -hmm. and they never saw it coming. So they were relating to my story. And so I I really looked at myself as being one of the highly vulnerable ones. Those who are being abused in their own Mm -hmm. home are some of the most vulnerable children to becoming trafficking victims. Mm. And that just did something in my heart where I just wanted to learn all I could about it. And I just started praying and I prayed for nine months that God would use me as a voice for those who are enslaved um, around the world. And so then I got a phone call from some of my friends in Dallas that have a TV program down there, um, Life Today and Life International wanted to send me with their film crew to Cambodia to interview child sex slaves um, there. Yeah, that just seemed like so scary, but also exactly what I felt compelled to pray for nine months. So how could I say no? Right, right. (laughs) So that's when I went and, you know, just seeing little girls in locked up little rooms with nothing in their room but a blanket and a bowl in the corner like their dog being fed once a day and just knowing that they were being tortured and and um, having to service eight to ten men a night and hearing their stories it was more than I could handle it was so triggering for me but also it was exactly what God used to break my heart mm-hmm. and I think when God breaks our heart for something that's when a light can come in and so I came back from that experience in Cambodia 
I went back to counseling again. <laughs> and this was yeah. in 2013. And it was through that that I felt like God was giving me more vision of actually being able to get in front of the problem, not just rescuing these girls, but actually stopping it before it starts. And so um, I started the nonprofit called One Voice for Freedom, which is specific to stopping child sex slavery around the world. Um, and so tell me what you mean a little bit about like getting in front of the problem, because this is, if anybody's done any reading on it, it is such <laughs> a widespread problem, even in the United States. Um, yes. And that could be a whole other show, several. Um, but mm-hmm. like I've read, I'm sure you have two girls like us, half the sky. I mean, those books really get right. into it. Um, so tell me though, what you're saying, like getting in front of the problem. What is yeah, that? So for me, my specific vision is, It all started when I met a mom during that trip um, with Life Outreach, where the mom was tricked by traffickers Mm -hmm. to put her girls on a bus to give them a life that she couldn't provide because she was so poor. She was a single mom, and she had two daughters she was trying to support. And this man comes to her village and tells them that, you know, if you send your girls with me for two years, I'm going to give them an education. They're going to learn English. They're going to have a job, you know, waitressing or cleaning or whatever it is and they'll send money back they'll have a cell phone they'll have clothes it'll just be the life you can't provide so they're tricked so she put her girls on the bus never to see them again no and one of them ended up coming back way later years later and she was in a coma and ended up dying but Mm. the mom knew enough to know that she had sold her daughters into sex slavery and then the other daughter was still gone she could not find her and so to me meeting her was devastating I'd never seen someone in so much grief in my life and it was so painful hearing her tell her story and crying and holding these pictures of her daughters and I just knew if someone had gone to this woman's village and taught her the tricks of traffickers and educated her she would never have put her girls on that bus. In fact, she would have told those dudes to get out of her village. Right. So my vision was let's get to these villages before the traffickers do. Let's not chase the problem. Let's get in front of it by educating them. And so I started raising money. I continued to speak on college campuses, but I empowered the college students to be part of the solution. I asked them to donate $2 for a pair of shoes for a kid in Cambodia, because in Cambodia, when it's very, very poor villages, they don't have shoes. So a pair of shoes brings these families out for miles and miles, they'll walk or bike to get a pair of shoes. But to get the shoes, they have to sit down and listen to this educational presentation on trafficking. And so that became my way in. And would you know, I raised from college students, $15,000 the first oh, wow, time Nicole. I was able to go over there and educate. And now, I mean, we've done it a few years now and we've educated, you know, over a hundred thousand families at this point. And about wow. 97% of them vow and, and pledge to not put their kids on this bus when somebody comes to their village and tells them these things and to drive these guys out of their villages. So it's been really cool just to see that. And it's so, you know, it's just grassroots and just wow. changing the story. Right, exactly. And you're changing the story just by starting with sharing yours and letting right. God, letting well, God use that. I think that's what's really cool is like eventually someone else's story or some 
type of maybe social injustice can become bigger than your own. You know, the mom, her name was Yem. Her story then became bigger than my story where I was like, I'm going to change things for her now. And just looking at her. And then I brought that back to the States. So now here, you know, we are empowering homeless youth through a feeding programs. We feed in Columbus, Ohio, we provide hot meals and um, hygiene bags to at-risk youth and develop relationships to where we can notice the signs of grooming, you know, red flags or things like that and empower them towards their own freedom here. Right. Because in the United States, I mean, the story is a little bit different how the girls get into sex trafficking. It's usually not moms putting them on a bus. It is so often the homeless youth or kids that age out of foster care that are lured into this business or, like you said, that are running away from a home of sexual abuse that end up in it. And just that awareness and the education of all of that. And like I said, in your show notes, we will put links to all of these things. How would you tell people if they want to get involved? I think two parts to that. If they want to get involved, like the One Voice for Freedom and Mm -hmm. helping with the sex trafficking and prevention and awareness, how would you advise people? Yeah, well, just go to our website. It's One Voice, the number four, freedom.org. And there's lots of information on our website about how to get involved or how to support us. Really, we have different needs that come up every month. We support survivors coming off the streets um, and, and getting them into programs and supporting their journey. And those needs change monthly. So we always need like monthly donors just to support all the random stuff that comes up for us. Um, but again, okay. that website is one voice, O-N-E-V-O-I-C-E, the number four freedom.org. Okay, very good. And then your other website is just onevoice.org. It is I am one voice. Oh, it is I am one voice. Okay, we'll make sure we have that I am one voice.org. And with that, um, what would you tell just hearing your story and the importance of telling for your healing? But we know that there's lots of women and men that are still carrying the story and have not told anyone even into adulthood, what would you say to those people? Yeah, I I just come back to it's never too early, never too late to tell. I mean, when I speak at a church, I'll have, you know, a 90-year-old woman tell me her story for the first time, and that is freedom for her. You know, being able to identify yourself, and um, I just believe that God really meets you there, and healing can begin. And also, it's not just for you, but it's for the next generation. We have to raise our voices against this stuff, or it's never going to stop. Yeah, you're exactly, you're exactly right. And you even say, I think in your book, you say healing begins when you start sharing your story and sharing your story doesn't mean in a national platform like you for everyone, but just telling one, one person can start your healing. So thank you so much, Nicole. I mean, just for your honesty, your vulnerability and letting God use you in big ways to help Mm -hmm. others. Um, You're just, you are such an inspiration and I appreciate you just sharing and you have your own podcast as well. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up. Yep. It's called the One Voice Podcast. So just one voice is one word. Type it up and you'll find it. Yep. We put out two a month. Okay, very good. So we'll put links to all these things where people can find you and your book if people are searching for their own healing or how they can be a healing source for others. Um, We'll put links to all of that. So thank you again, Nicole. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Andrea. This has been really fun. I appreciate you being a voice and shedding light on this. It means the world to me. Survivors of childhood sexual abuse can be found in every corner of society. Yet this shocking reality is often blanketed by silence. If a child tells you they're being abused, please believe them. 
or if you suspect a child is being abused or neglected, you should call your local protective service agency. To get help finding the appropriate agency or to speak with a crisis counselor, Child Help USA National Abuse Hotline is 1-800-4-A-CHILD. That's 1-800-4-A-CHILD. This anonymous hotline is dedicated to the prevention of both sexual and non-sexual abuse and staffed 24 hours. You can also go to their website at www.childhelpusa.org. This number and the link will be on the Her Story Speaks website, as well as links to purchase Nicole's books and where to find her and her nonprofits at www.herstoryspeaks.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Her Story Speaks podcast.